So I want to see how well you get my kind of twisted sense of humor. If I tell you our, our topic is mistaken identity, does, does this make the point? Sometimes mistaken identity can, can be kind of humorous. Um, as I was thinking about this, I thank God. I mean, I was blessed with three sons, but I wasn't given any twins because I would think if there's ever a situation where you might mix up somebody's identity, it would be having twins. Unless, of course, you come up with some way to identify them the way these people did. I, I know my sister-in-law, they had twins, and they actually for a while put dots on the bottom of their feet just so that they would make sure they, they kept them straight. So it's an easy thing to, to get people mixed up. And sometimes it is kind of humorous, but sometimes it's very tragic. I, I don't know how many of you recall this story. It happened a number of years ago. There were six college kids driving home from school. They were in an awful accident. Five of them were killed. One survived. And because of the trauma, and the EMTs immediately started bandaging up the one survivor. Uh, for five months, actually, these two girls' identity was mixed up. Uh, it was the Syrac girl who actually survived, and her parents were told that their daughter died. And the Van Rin family actually believed it was their daughter who was in the hospital recovering. It wasn't until Whitney actually woke up from the coma uh, that she could tell everybody, uh, no, my real identity is, is Whitney. Um, I, can't, I can't even begin to guess what it felt like as the parents. And the joy of the parents who realizing their daughter had survived, but then also the grief of the parents who thought for all this time their daughter was getting better, only to find out that, that she had actually passed away. So mistaken identity can be a very serious thing, and we've never had a more serious case of that than our lesson this morning. We're moving on to that next chunk of Mark's record of the passion history. Uh, and, and I'll remind you what that is in just a little bit. Um, but I want to also introduce this lesson to you with a video. Um, I found a neat set of videos that it uses an older translation, but it does a really good job of translating the Greek for us and, and putting into some pretty specific terms and matches Mark's writing style. Um, so here I want to show you Jesus' case of mistaken identity. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Just so your parents know, I am sensitive to the fact that we have children here. I'll comment on that a little bit later. Um, that's about as tame of a video as, as I could find of the text lesson. And, and maybe your children have questions about seeing scenes like this. Um, and I'm of the belief, and I did it with my own sons, that we have to be honest with what Jesus actually struggled with and suffered as our Savior from sin. And one of the beauties of following this mini-series from Mark is he does a, a, an amazing job. Of course, they're all inspired, 
But Mark has a specific writing style. Now, I checked with Pastor Abrahamson to make sure I'm not overly redundant about this, because uh, the only drawback I found so far about having two locations and two pastors preaching the same text is sometimes we end up repeating each other, uh, and then sometimes based on the way in which we're tackling a specific text, um, from week to week you might not have the flow of thought. So not to be overly redundant, but so that we are all on the same page, as I'm taking us through these lessons from the Gospel of Mark, what I'm actually trying to do is focus on his audience, the original group of people who would have received this letter and found out these details about what Jesus had to go through. Um, and I've put up here some details. His audience was mainly Gentile, mostly of the Roman ethnicity. And that plays in great detail in how we see the Holy Spirit having Mark record these things. And then also the amount of details that Mark records. Of the four Gospels, Mark's the shortest. Not, not because he didn't have a lot to say, but he gets right to the point. That's Mark's writing style. And then he also knows there are going to be other people reading this, but for the sake of his original audience, he explains Jewish customs. He explains Jewish terminology. Uh, you'll find that Mark, more than India Gospels, will have Latin words in his original text because he's actually writing to a people who spoke and wrote the Latin language. And so we need to view it from that perspective. In fact, we see that right from the very beginning with that opening verse when he talks about what happens with Jesus. Um, it's the Gospel of John that establishes the trial before Pontius Pilate took place in a very public venue. And John, of course, is very much knowledgeable of the fact that a large part of his audience is Jewish, so he just gives it that name, Gabbatha but then goes on to translate it for them, the stone pavement. So in this very public place, Pontius Pilate actually comes out on his judge's seat and we have all of the religious leaders and we have a crowd of people and that's where the sentence is passed that even though Pilate three times says Jesus is innocent, he sentences him to be crucified. John uh, has established that for us and Mark now tells us from that point on, things become a little bit more private. They take Jesus inside, and he uses a word for the Jewish people, palace, but then also throws in the Latin word, praetorium. And the Roman readers would immediately understood what he's talking about. He's talking about this place that's northwest of the temple compound. And that's ordinarily where Pontius Pilate would stay when he was visiting the city of Jerusalem, but it would also house the Roman soldiers. It has a name, Fort Antonia. And there, what we find is, is that it's basically the center of Roman culture within this Jewish city of Jerusalem. It, it's not just this place for Pontius Pilate to do his court trials and all of that. You would also think that maybe shifting from that uh, public setting, where all of these people are crying out for Jesus' execution and accusing him of just crazy things, once things shift to the inside, maybe it would calm down just a little bit, but anything... But that happened. Actually, things take a turn. They get much more violent. They, they get much more brutal. And Mark really spells that out for us. And it's in this simple phrase, gathering together this whole company of soldiers. While the word that he uses, spira, actually to a Roman reader would have immediately clicked. What he's talking about is a cohort of the Roman army. And you see how that's all divided up on that graphic for you. But basically, all you need to know is a Roman cohort actually numbers about 600 soldiers. That was the group that was assigned to the city of Jerusalem, both to protect the governor, Pontius Pilate, and then ultimately to try and keep order amongst the capital city of the Jewish people. 
So when Mark tells us in this very precise fashion that they all got together, if we subtract out the couple hundred that might have been roaming out in the city doing their daily patrols, making sure people were behaving themselves, so you understand what Mark's telling us. There were literally hundreds of soldiers that now gathered together for this next step of our Lord's passion. So we leave the public venue, but that doesn't mean we leave a crowd of people. And in fact, when you see this from the Roman perspective, you begin to understand what we're about to study. The people who originally read this understood just how cruel, how brutal, how vicious, how deadly a Roman soldier was. In fact, as Mark goes on to talk about what they did with Jesus, he simply, in his matter-of-fact way, lists off this pre-crucifixion uh, routine that the Roman soldiers would often take those condemned to die through. And in Mark's right-to-the-point style, he just lifts off, they struck him, they spit on him, <clears throat> and they mocked him. But what you don't see, what's in the original language, is that each of these verbs is in the imperfect. And that may not mean a whole lot to you until I tell you. What that describes for us is a repeated action. That basically, it should be translated, they kept striking him, they kept spitting on him, and they kept paying him this fake homage. They did it over and over and over again. One of the challenges of reading through the Passion history is to get the time allotment correct on all of these things. And we don't know exactly how long the Roman soldiers had to abuse Jesus. Because they weren't just trying to inflict physical pain. They were actually trying to inflict both psychological and emotional abuse. How long does it take for hundreds of soldiers to an ordinary person just literally break them down to nothing? And that's where this case of mistaken identity came in. They thought Jesus was just another man. They thought he was like any other guy of the other hundreds of condemned people that they tortured and then ultimately nailed to a cross. They thought he was somebody who was calling himself a king, and they latch onto that, and they make all kinds of fun of it, but they don't recognize or realize that Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews. He is the king of creation. Now, now just for a moment, imagine you're one of those early Roman readers, and you're just beginning to understand the concept of Christianity. You're just beginning to grasp atonement, that God had made a promise to send his son, and he was going to suffer and die in the place of everybody who was a sinner. Imagine being a Roman now coming to faith and realizing what went on, that these Roman soldiers were beating and spitting on and mocking God himself. What kind of realization would have that been for these Roman readers to have watched how many times these soldiers had done this to others and now for the first time comprehend they were doing this to God? Now, I, I told you I'd talk about this. I, I am sensitive to trying to help us understand the perspective of these original readers. And I comb through all kinds of videos to try my best to present that information in a way that wouldn't scare your children, or basically most of them that I have will literally turn your stomach. Because when you see what they did to Jesus, when you begin to grasp, and sometimes there are some videos that do a good job of putting it into pictures, it makes you sick.
I did find this one, and it's more of an explanation educational video, and I want to share that with you now. I want you to try and grasp what these Roman readers would have just simply understood from their upbringing, from their day-to-day -day of watching how the Roman army and the soldiers did things. Something that was common knowledge for them helps us to understand what Jesus endured for us. Stephen M. Miller. I write books about the Bible. I think most folks know that the Romans crucified people. They crucified people they thought threatened the Roman way of life, and they did it to send a message. Don't mess with Rome. Crucifixion wasn't just a slow and painful way to die. It was shameful, reserved for the worst offenders. The Bible talks a bit about what it was like to go through a crucifixion. Soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters. They stripped him, spit on him, grabbed a stick and struck him. Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull, Golgotha. There, they nailed him to the cross. Bible writers weren't the only ones talking about crucifixion. So did the Romans, in gritty detail. I don't think many people know what the Romans had to say about crucifixions they saw with their own eyes in the days when Jesus was alive. He was whipped until his bones showed. Each criminal who goes to execution must carry his own cross on his back. Sixteen men were paraded out, chained together by the foot and neck, each carrying his own cross. The executioners added this grim public spectacle to the punishment as an extra deterrent to anyone thinking about committing the same crime. Some hang their victims upside down, some impale them through the private parts, others stretch out their hands onto forked poles. Is there such a thing as a person who would actually prefer wasting away in pain on a cross, dying limb by limb, one drop of blood at a time, rather than dying quickly? Would any human being willingly choose to be fastened to that cursed tree, especially after the beating that left him deathly weak, deformed, swelling with vicious welts on shoulders and chest, and struggling to draw every last agonizing breath? Anyone facing such a death would plead to die rather than mount the cross. Reliable witnesses saw the man being dragged to the cross while crying out that he was a Roman citizen. And you, Varys, confirmed that he did cry out that he was a Roman citizen, yet you sent him to a most cruel and shameful death anyhow. Every day, Roman soldiers caught 500 Jews or more. The soldiers, driven by their hatred of the Jews, nailed them to crosses. They nailed them in many different positions to entertain themselves and to horrify the Jews watching this spectacle from inside the walled city of Jerusalem. In time, the soldiers ran out of wood for crosses and room for crosses even if they had found more wood. Romans didn't just write about crucifixion. They reported the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus actually shows up in Roman history books and letters written during his own century. There was a wise man called Jesus, a good person who could work wonders. He attracted many followers, Jews and non-Jews. Pilate, at the request of our leaders, sentenced him to death by crucifixion. 
Nero, blamed the fire that destroyed much of Rome on a group of people he found so disgusting that he ordered them tortured in horrifying ways. They were Christians. They got their name from Christus, a man who suffered the ultimate penalty at the hands of a procurator, Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was emperor of Rome. The fact that Jesus lived and was crucified isn't just a story in the Bible, Christian scholars say. It's written into Roman history. Just to clarify a couple of things you said, though, the one quote about the man being dragged off to the cross claiming he's a Roman citizen, Roman citizens weren't supposed to be crucified. It was considered far too cruel for them. If you were a Roman citizen and you were going to be executed, the, the humane way to do that was, was to chop off your head. It was quick and it was over, whereas the cross was just agonizing. And then the part about running out of wood and uh, all the people watching from the city, that happens during the time when it's leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was such a deterrent seeing people crucified. Basically, they were hoping the people inside the city would just give up, uh, just surrender. Uh, and so they crucified group after group after group. These are the things that our Lord endured both on the way to the cross and then ultimately the cross itself. And in fact, that's how Mark finishes up this part of the Passion history. And again, you see it in Mark's style of writing. He just gets right to the point. They let him away to crucify him. They don't, he doesn't say a whole lot more. But what the people who read this understood was they're leaving this private setting where Jesus was just tortured. And the torture's not over. The mocking's not over. He now is led throughout the city to Calvary. And along the way, there would have been more verbal abuse. There would have been more mocking because now he's brought back out into public. In fact, uh, one of the things that was customary was a person who was condemned to die by crucifixion oftentimes would wear a, a placard that would state the crime. Now, with Jesus, we know that didn't happen. It was added later on. It was nailed to the top of the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And, of course, the, the religious officials object to that. Say that he claimed that, not that he was that. Jesus' identity was mistaken over and over and over again because he claimed to be Messiah, and it's not the one that they wanted. In fact, when you think about it, it's such ir irony that just five days earlier, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, and they were proclaiming he was the king. They wanted him to be their king. But then as Messiah, when he explains to them, I'm not the kind of king that you're looking for. I'm, I'm not here to get rid of the Roman people. I'm not here to make your lives beautiful on earth. I'm, I'm here to offer you something better, something Something more than that. When Jesus explained he was choosing death rather than restoring Israel to its position of great prominence and giving every Israelite a life of luxury here in time, but rather he was coming in order to make payment for everybody's sins so that we could enjoy not only a relationship with God, but truly a life of luxury for eternity. They didn't want that kind of king. They mistook his identity as just another person making just another claim that he was Messiah, when in fact, standing right before them was truly the Son of God, the one that God had promised since the moment sin came into this world, and they just didn't see it. We might think, how, how could they be so blind to that? All right, Betty, this is the part I promised you about, because people are still blind to this today. People are still mocking Jesus today. A perfect example is, whether or not you saw the email or not, that's a pretty brief description of what's in front of our Congress right now, the Equality Act, and it's anything but 
equality. And don't misunderstand, I don't care about your politics. I don't care who you voted for. But there does come a time when there's an unjust law that is being presented for our country. It means we should stand up. It means that we should speak up. And again, if you didn't open the email, if you didn't read it, I'm encouraging all of you, first and foremost, to pray. Ask God to protect us from such unjust laws. Because basically, if this passes, Christian day schools, even churches, will be in a real bind hiring people who don't believe what the church teaches. And if you don't do that, then you're not being equal. And you can be sued and maybe shut down by the federal government. And if that wasn't enough, I came across this clip, somebody had actually shared this with me, that you see not only how unjust this law is, but in fact how much God is being mocked. Especially towards the end, listen to what that congressman has to say. That's right, Tracy. It was some very strong words by the Democratic congressman from New York, and it was directed at Republican Florida Congressman Greg Stubbe. He uh, was reading out of the Bible, and he was talking about the differences between man and woman. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Unlike most speeches you'll hear on this floor today, I'm going to start with the truth. Deuteronomy 22.5 states, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now, this verse isn't concerned about clothing styles, but with people determining their own sexual identities. Republican Congressman Greg Stubbe of Florida continued to outline why he believes the equality bill shouldn't pass. Minutes later, due to snickering from lawmakers... ...bear the consequences. General will suspend. The House will be in order. At the end, New York Democratic Representative Gerald Nadler responded. Mr. Stubbe, what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. I reached out to both Congressman Stubbe and Nadler for a comment. Congressman Stubbe tells me he disagrees with his Democratic colleague and wishes he had the chance to respond directly. Congressman Stubbe says right above the House Speaker's roster reads the words, In God We Trust. Again, this isn't political. I don't care what those guys think for most of their lives. What I do care about is our elected representatives now passing laws that stand in direct defiance of the Christian church and of God's word. And so I am urging you, encouraging you to pray. Pray hard. And if it so moves you, contact our senators. They're the ones that are going to be voting on this sooner than later and encourage them not to vote for this because it will ultimately place God's word against the leadership of our country who seem very comfortable mocking God. Now, lest uh, you leave here this morning smug and thinking, well, way to go, Pastor, way to encourage us Christians because we're better than those guys in Washington, right? Truth of the matter is, is that oftentimes we elect people who simply imitate the population. Truth of the matter is, is that we also find ourselves mocking God. He might think, no, I would never do that. Well, think this through. Every time we go through the motions of faith, but it's not really buried deep in our hearts, a deep abiding trust in our God, that's mocking God. We make our oaths, we pledge our promises, and we say our prayers telling God, we trust you, we believe in you, but then we turn right around and we don't. And if there's anybody who's got a track record of perfection when it comes to promises, both making them and keeping them, it's God. And yet we struggle to actually trust God. And this present situation is one of those situations. I'm encouraging you to pray and contact your 
elected leaders, not because God doesn't know what he's doing or ultimately God's not in control. It's an opportunity for us to both express and exercise our faith. Sometimes when God allows our faith to be tested, we don't see his love in those things. And right now we are going through a period of testing. I, I don't know how else to put it. Things are happening now that have never happened in my lifetime. Maybe some of you have seen it. I haven't. Where God and the principles of the Christian faith are so under attack. Of course, the Lord promised us this would happen. It doesn't make it any easier. But sometimes I fail to stop and say, thank you, God, for trusting us so much with this precious gift of the gospel that we also should find that there are times to stand up and defend it as well as share it. And sometimes that's all God wants us to do. And so he creates the opportunity for that to happen. Don't deceive yourself, as I'm trying not to deceive myself, just like those soldiers, just like those people in Jerusalem, just like the people who claim that what God says doesn't apply anymore, we also struggle with the fact that deep down inside, there's only one thing that ultimately matters. And that is a relationship with the one who claimed to be a king. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all creation. Because in Mark's amazing and beautiful style, and as he's teaching these Roman readers what it meant for this man to suffer and ultimately die, we have the privilege of witnessing again and experiencing from a new perspective that Jesus didn't just go to Calvary to die for all of our sins. He suffered. He paid for everything that we've ever done, including mocking with every drop of blood that he shed. If that doesn't tell you that God is untrustworthy, if that doesn't tell you how much God loves you, there is nothing in Scripture or anywhere in this world that ever will. God has marked record these events, not just for those original Roman readers, but for us as well. Because we need to understand that getting somebody's identity is vitally important. It doesn't just avoid confusion or frustration, but it helps us to stop for a moment and not just see Jesus as a man. Another man who ended up sentenced unfairly and ultimately being executed because somebody just didn't get it right. He's also God who chose the cross for each of us. And each and every one of us ought to make sure that we have his identity absolutely right. He's not just a friend. He's our king. And he's our savior. No other king could vanquish the war horse or silence the warrior's rage while riding the lowly back of a donkey. No other king could break the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of evil, with a reign of grace and a kingdom of peace. No other king could give his life for the redemption of rebels, his wealth to welcome the outcast. glory, son of the living God, not just another king, not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He was the one the world had been waiting for, the one to deliver us from captivity, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He is the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the 
prisoners and proclaim good news to the poor. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the one prefigured to Noah in the flood, the one promised to Abraham, the one guaranteed to Moses before he died, the one promised to David during his reign, the one revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the one predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. He is our Jesus, and there is no other king like him. He is our God, our glory, our victorious Savior. There is no other king like him. There is no other king.